Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, the increasing cost of child care. I know a lot of you know what that's like. It's been estimated the cost of child care in this country has risen, pay close attention to this, by 41 percent during the pandemic. Will a recently expanded state program offer relief, especially for low-income families? And also today. Our community was never integrated. We wanted the culture and other stuff to stay intact. We pretty much self-govern, and that will be the simplest way to put it. Georgia's Sapelo Island, it's home to the last community of saltwater Geechee people, descendants of enslaved Africans, and now featured in a documentary. Plus, we'll get an update on preservation and other efforts to keep the land with the generations of families who live there. Important community conversations just ahead, but we'll begin with this. Citing health reasons, the president of Clayton State University, T. Ramon Stewart, is resigning less than a year after taking the post. Stewart told the Clayton State community, quote, As many of you know, I've had some unfortunate health challenges this year that resulted in the removal of my kidney. Unfortunately, my health challenges continue to plague me, and I'm unable to effectively lead the university in a manner that it deserves, close quote. Now, newly appointed University System of Georgia Chancellor Sonny Perdue has named Carrie L. Hayward interim president. According to a release from the system, she is currently serving as a university attorney for Georgia State University, where she is a member of the senior leadership team. In other news, Governor Brian Kemp has signed legislation officially allowing state employees to take off Juneteenth as a paid holiday. As Christopher Austin reports, the move brings Georgia in line with the federal government, which declared Juneteenth a national holiday last year. The measure passed by lawmakers on the final day of the session increases the number of paid holidays from 12 to 13 for state employees. It also designates the week of September 11th as Public Safety Week. Kemp signed a proclamation recognizing Juneteenth in 2021, but it was too late to close state offices. Kemp enlisted Dean of the House Calvin Smyrie to sponsor the legislation in honor of his retiring after 48 years. Smyrie also sponsored the 1984 legislation making Martin Luther King Jr. Day a state holiday. Juneteenth is celebrated on June 19th to commemorate the date in 1865 when slaves in Texas learned they were free two years after the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation. Because the holiday falls on a Sunday this year, Georgia will observe Juneteenth on June 20th. Christopher Alston, WABE News. He's back. Tiger Woods. In his 24th appearance at the Masters, Tiger Woods teed off earlier today at Augusta National as the prestigious championship gets underway. Woods is playing in his first major since that car accident last year. Now, he already has five green jackets for winning the tournament. 
And believe it or not, those who partake in the sports betting world, a lot of folks have put money on Tiger. We'll see. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues here on 90.1 WABE. Amplifying Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. The cost of child care in this country, it's risen by 41% during the pandemic. Something else you should know, nearly 16,000 child care providers have closed since 2020. As our Paycheck to Paycheck series continues, today we're going to focus on how Georgians are coping with the rising cost of child care and if there's any relief According to the latest data from the Economic Policy Institute, the average yearly cost of infant care in Georgia is $8,530. That's about $711 per month. If you have a four-year-old running around, and I have a lot of them in my family, the average yearly cost is $7,306, which breaks down to $609 a month. Now, nationwide, some more numbers for you. Households are spending an average of a little over 14000 annually. That's up from $9,977 pre-pandemic. We love our kids. We have to. And they should pay y'all back for all this. Here in Georgia, the hope is some relief is available due to the expansion of the Child Care and Parent Services Program, also known as CAPS. And joining me now to talk more about this is Elizabeth Casper, the Deputy Commissioner for Federal Programs at the Georgia Department of Early Early Care and Learning. Commissioner, thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Hi. It's good to be here with you. You know, I gave a lot of figures coming into our conversation, and, and you, of course, are very aware of the rising cost of child care since the pandemic started. What do you make of all this, Commissioner? Um, you are absolutely right. There is um, definitely been a uh, significant increase in the cost of child care over the years and, and, and in the pandemic specifically. However, um, in Georgia, we have the Child Care and Parent Services Program that can um, certainly assist with that. We have seen, as you mentioned in the beginning of the broadcast, um, the, the number, I think Child Care Aware has a similar number mm-hmm. of it, the cost in Georgia being over $8,000 per child um, for an infant. And so um, that really um, is a significant cost. And so um, we, we have this Child Care and Parent Services Program in Georgia that, that provides assistance to eligible families to assist with that cost. And um, I think you also mentioned in the beginning that we have um, recently expanded. Let me ask you this. How many families in Georgia are enrolled in the CAPS program right now? Any idea? 
Yeah, we are committed to serving um, 50,000 and with our expansion, 60,000 children. So 60 given time. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Sorry. Then, that's okay. And and f- if you can d- paint a snapshot for our listeners these these households are we typically talking about low income household low income households here? Yeah, yeah. So in order to be eligible for the child care and parent services or CAPS program, a family has to have an income at under 85% of the state median income. So right now that would equate to roughly $72,000 a year. In typical times, when we don't have um, this CAPS expansion in place, which allowed us to increase our eligibility limits, it would be 50% of the state median income, which would um, equate to roughly $42,000 a year. So that's, that's the income levels, at least. So you're telling me then the need to expand became, for the expansion, was due to? the pandemic and the challenges so many households were, were incurring? Yeah, that was definitely in trying to respond um, to the needs of families during the pandemic and so many people who um, during COVID lost jobs and had reduced hours. We saw so much of that happening. And so we wanted to increase the access of families to the program. And in order to increase the number, we also wanted to increase those eligibility limits. Well, let me ask you this then, because obviously that means more funding. Did you all receive additional federal funding? We did. We've received um, nearly $2 billion now, not for just this program. Mm-hmm. This, this, this is just one piece of the many things that um, we have used that money, but we have tried to get, get that money out the door to child care providers as quickly as possible, and in this case, to families. So um, we do pay the child care provider, but the family would obviously get the benefit when we are um, giving child care assistance. So, Commissioner, let's back up for a moment because we know there was a need, that need increase, but I also gave that statistic about the thousands and thousands of child care providers that closed during the pandemic so my question is, here in Georgia, do we see a significant amount of child care providers having to close their doors as well? That's a great question. Um, it actually happened a little differently in Georgia. Mm-hmm. What we saw at the very beginning of the pandemic was that enrollment in child care programs plummeted. And so, uh, as it makes sense, because a lot of people at that time were staying home and were worried about being out and about and... Um, so child care um, uh, experienced the same changes as, as mm-hmm. other um, parts of our lives. So enrollment plummeted to um, extremely low levels, but then people were often also not paying, which means that the industry mm-hmm. is hard. It's difficult for them to stay afloat. So throughout the pandemic, it remained lower. It is still not back to pre-pandemic levels, the enrollment of children again. Um, however, that it is close, much closer, definitely very different than Mm -hmm. it was in the beginning. And when you look at the number of facilities that we had licensed, of licensed facilities prior to the pandemic, and you look at the number now, it's actually roughly the same. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason for that is that childcare in Georgia never closed. You might have heard in other states where they closed down all, you know, all sorts of different industries, but childcare being one of them, 
Um, and in Georgia, Governor Kemp and um, the commissioner, Commissioner Toomey of the of Department of Public Health, didn't make the, the election to close child care. They allowed child care to close if they felt they needed to, mm-hmm. but to remain open to serve our essential um, services workforce, as well as any other folks that had to go to work during the pandemic. Because as you can imagine, if child care closes and mm-hmm. you don't have a job where you can work at home, then that can present a lot of challenges for a family. I've got emails coming in, folks wanting to know how this all works, particularly since you just gave that number due to the expansion that 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 household income which is at 72,000 now how does all this work does a does a parent they find the child care provider and then they sign up for the program or, or what's the process here that's a great question too so um if that if somebody's interested in applying to receive child care assistance they would go to our Georgia Gateway system which is actually the website that you would go to to apply for all sorts of benefits, not mm-hmm. just um, CAPS, but also um, SNAP, mm-hmm. um, the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, and Medicaid and PANIS, all of those various benefit programs. Child care is one of the ones you can apply for there. So you would go there, you would fill out an application, and it would ask you to upload some documents. Um, for our eligibility, we look at the income that we already talked about. Mm-hmm. We also look at whether um, the CAPS program is intended to support you as you work or go to school. So we, we do require in, in um, most cases that you have what we call an approved activity. So for um, people who are um, working, that would be 24 hours minimum per week. Mm-hmm. And if you're in school, we count um, credit hours two for one. So 12 credit hours would get you to the 24, or it could be a combination of both. Sure. So you have to be, the main ones are income and activity. Your child also has to be a citizen, and um, they have to meet age eligibility and that would be any child that's between zero and 13 and then occasionally we've got some special exceptions for kids who are older than 13 but the bulk would be between zero and 13 which is typical age for child care mm-hmm. and then um, in addition there's a few other things um, and the, the other major one that's important to note I think is that in addition to those eligibility requirements, we do require that you be in one of our 12 priority groups. And so these are groups like children in foster care would be one of our priority groups. Mm -hmm. Um, Families who are experiencing um, homelessness or lacking fixed and adequate housing. Mm -hmm. Um, Families who are experiencing domestic violence would fall in our priority groups. we have another income threshold just to confuse things a little bit of what we call a priority group that's called families with very low income. Sure. And so that would be right now at 150% of the federal poverty um, guidelines, which would equate for a family of four to roughly $39,000, a little bit over, I think, 39000 And then, of course, if you're in the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families or the TANF program, Mm -hmm. you would be in a priority group. And there's several more. I'm glad to go into more detail if you want me to. Well, I want to switch for a moment um, because we were, unfortunately, we're coming up on time. But I want to switch for a moment and make sure folks understand, too, in the process, these child care providers, will you all do the best you can to match them 
with a, with a provider that's in their community. Maybe if English as a second language is a priority, special needs, those type of, of child care providers that might have some special, some offer some special resources as well. Is that is that available? Absolutely. If you go to our qualityrated.org website, there is a tremendous amount of information about how to find a child care program. And we um, direct you to absolutely try to check out the quality rated programs because they've been through a rigorous process to help um, validate their quality. In addition to that, um, somebody can call 1-800-ALL-GEORGIA-KIDS. And they are uh, trained professionals there to help you to connect to quality, affordable child care. And, Commissioner, before I let you go, with this expansion, is this going to be a permanent expansion or just throughout the pandemic? This sounds like such a great program for all households that fit the criteria. You all aren't going to go back to that, that other threshold, are you? Yeah, unfortunately, because it's one-time funding, we're not able to just sustain unless that changes. If some reason we receive additional funding, then we would absolutely be able to look at how to continue an expansion. So we, um, at some point, once we've added the 10,000 children, we'll need to close those eligibility limits back down to what they were before. Um, But the children who have been added while we have them open would just continue in our program the way any other child who's added not under these circumstances, which means as long as you're eligible, you would continue to be able to receive our services. There's not a time limit on that. This is where y'all need the congressional delegation to lobby on your behalf up there in Washington, tell the Biden administration to give you some more funding for this. That's Those are my words, not yours. <laughs> <laughs> We're always open to receiving more funding to be able to provide more services to families. A lot of people appreciate that. Elizabeth Casper, Elizabetta, I'm sorry, Casper, Deputy Commissioner for Federal Programs at the Georgia Department of Early Care and Learning. And we've been talking about the rising cost of child care in Georgia and how the expansion of the CAPS program, Child Care and Parent Services Program, is helping an additional 10,000 households. Commissioner, I want to bring you back to talk more about this, and we'll have links to the application process and all of that. Thank you all so much for what you're doing for so many households. Thank you. Thank you for having me. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Here's a description. Located midway on the Georgia coastline on the eastern fringe of McIntosh County, Sapelo Island is defined by the Sapelo River to the north, the waters of Doughboy Sound to the south, the Atlantic Ocean to the east, and the Duplin River to the west. Hope I said that right. The 16,500-acre island is the fourth-largest barrier island in the state of Georgia. Now, that description is from GeorgiaWildlife.com. But if you don't know, you should. There's a lot more to Sapelo Island. The island was our own little world. Come on. Sapelo Island seven miles off the coast of Georgia. Cornelia Walker Bailey's family has lived here for nine generations. Our community was never integrated. We wanted the culture and other stuff to stay intact. We pretty much self-governed, and that will be the simplest way to put it. Amid the saltwater marshes and tall oak trees, her boys hunt, fish, and explore the island. 
I told the good Lord all I want to do is see that them three boys finish high school and start doing something for themselves. But will they want to stay? Not only do I love the boys, but they're the next generation. So they're it. The selfish part of me want them to stay because I want them to help keep my community going. <laughs> Be so bored on the island sometimes. It gets very bored when no one wants to play with me. We started planting some red peas. I built my own little garden. That's one of the official trailers from the documentary film Sapelo, which takes place on Georgia's Sapelo Island and will air on the Peabody Award-winning series America Reframe beginning today. And I'm joined now by Nick Brandestini, Sapelo's director, cinematographer, and also co-director Taylor Seacrest. Thank you both for taking the time. Nick, I understand, are you in Switzerland? Yes, correct, in Zurich, Switzerland, where yeah. I was born and where I currently and I've always lived, actually. All right. Well, yeah. let's get let's get to this because there's always a backstory. Nick, I'll let you begin. How did you all get involved with in, in, in doing this project? Uh, first of all, thank you so much, Rose, for having us. It's an honor and pleasure. So I had this is my third feature length documentary film. And so far, what I've been doing and um, what I've been interested in was to meet uh, communities and places and ways of life that I'm unfamiliar with, but I, that I have an interest in. So I made a, a documentary about a small community in the desert a few years ago, which was well received uh, by the people there and the film festival. And then I did a film in Alaska, the opposite, kind of from the hot weather. I was curious to learn more about the way of life up there. Uh, and it was about Alaska natives mm -hmm. and whaling was an important part of their culture. Sure. And then I discovered um, Saplo. To make a long story short, I wanted to make another film about a community that had a rich history and uh, that I was uh, interested in learning more about. And I was lucky enough to meet uh, Cornelia Walker Bailey, who is an important voice uh, of Saplo. Mm -hmm. And I met her and her family and we, uh, Cornelia and I got along immediately and then eventually uh, decided to make uh, this documentary. And so it was made together with Taylor. We worked on this as the main, main two people who worked on the film. Mm. And it was a project that went on for a couple of years. So mm. this was not a, a quick uh, process. It was just, uh, it took us a couple of years from beginning 2016 till uh, now. So it's been, mm. uh, been a while, but it's been a wonderful experience. I can imagine. And, and Taylor, I wanna bring you in the conversation. You know, I gave that description coming into the segment for a reason because Sapelo Island is so much more than just a tourist spot. This is culture. This is history for those for those folks who live there. Absolutely, um, I, and I think that's the part that kind of gets uh, maybe overshadowed or not seen very often, um, which was part of our motivation for making this film. Um, I mean, Cornelia. Bailey, who's kind of the central figure in the film, along with her two sons, um, has a has a bit of a following. I mean, she's been a, a, a storyteller and a kind of historian of the culture in the island mm -hmm. um, and, and a preserver of that culture um, for a long time, for her whole life, basically. Um, and so... Uh, we wanted to to bring that into the spotlight, but she's been kind of the main um, 
the, the main mouthpiece for that for a long time. And now her son, Maurice, her older son, mm-hmm. is carrying that mantle. I know you've spoken to him before, and it looks like you might speak to him today. Yeah. Um, and he's kind of carrying that mantle now with his organization. Um, but it's true. It, it, it's, um, you know, it, it, the, Gullah, the Gullah Geechee culture at large maybe gets a little exposure, but Sapelo itself and the community of Hog Hammock on Sapelo less so. You know, I always tell folks when they ask about putting together a feature or a documentary or a story, and I've told journalists this, and, and my producers would tell you, you have to let a story breathe. And when you're the creative, and I think, Nick, you can, I think you can attest to this, you don't always want to put your voice, your your narrative on it. You want this story to breathe, although I want listeners to, to go and watch it. But what was unique about this documentary? How much of it will we just hear and see from the people and, and folks are able to feel their story? Oh, thank you so much for saying that. I I hope it is, and I think it is, the story of the people and from the people of the community. But of course, it's always a little strange having me from Switzerland with totally different background coming in and exploring the place and learning about it. Uh, but I do hope it's the story of, of Cornelia in particular, who um, told me when I first when we first met all these stories of her growing up on the island in the 1950s. And she had the way she, she told those stories to me and to many others was so um, intriguing the way um, she described the environment and what uh, the forest me- meant to her and the oak trees. Mm-hmm. And I love the environment personally myself. I mean, the, the oak trees are just so beautiful and powerful. And the whole environment was so um, intriguing and rich to me. And uh, so I wanted to incorporate her stories that she told me and many others in the film. And so you do hear in uh, throughout the film these narration passages, sure. which we decided is like a... Um, a version of a younger version of Cornelia telling these stories, so the audience gets a better feel for the place, and uh, through her voice directly. And so, uh, yeah. Taylor, how big Is was that? Your... What... Yes. No, no, you answered it perfectly. No, no, no. I'll continue. Continue. No, no, Sorry. you're you're fine. You're you look. <laughs> this is as I say all the time. This is through your viewpoint, your lens. I can't tell you what to say or how to say it. I just want you to say something. <laughs> <laughs> Taylor. How big was your crew? Because, and first of all, Taylor and Nick, um, the cinematography is just absolutely gorgeous. And if folks have not been to Sapelo Island, they get a very clear and beautiful, beautiful lens to this community. Taylor, how big was your, your crew? I mean, the crew is basically Nick himself, I should say, and he deserves all that cinematography credit. Um, himself, um, he, he goes out there. Thank and, you, thank you. <laughs> and this particular, I mean, we we did these three films together, uh, and this most recent one, he, he went there entirely himself. I review the footage and work with Nick remotely, and so um, sometimes we're working together uh, when we're when we're you know getting deep into the editing or in the beginning phases of developing the project. But um, a lot, most of the work is done remotely. And so, um, but I really like what you said about, about telling this, you know, allowing the story to breathe. I think you really hit on what Nick and I have been striving to do in all of these movies, which is allow the, the residents of these communities to speak for themselves and to define the place themselves. Because obviously we are coming at it 
in each of these cases, and especially with Sapelo, even though I'm from Atlanta, I'd never been there, and I've still never been there. Um, I look forward to going soon. But but the idea is um, the films are immersive, which requires a first-person kind of, you know, subjective thing that we're, Nick and I are doing, and especially Nick being there as a one-man band doing sound and camera and everything. But then also uh, there's this other aspect to it which is the heart of the film which is the characters who are kind of revealing and telling us their stories and putting so much trust on us and so we try to carry that burden as responsibly as we can it's very hard tricky thing being such outsiders as we are um but but uh we do our best and i think one thing to point out is that while we have the stories of cornelia as kind of the spine of the film the the story of her sons we also wanted their perspective because there's such there's so much overlap and what they're going through that's kind of unspoken but then there's such a disparate um thing going on between them and that's so, so much that conflict is so much of what the film is about and i don't want to give too much away and i also want to respect the these young boys um because they are minors but did you have to explain to them look don't hold anything back Speak what's on your mind, as we all say, speak truth to power. Did you tell them, just go with it, don't worry about, well, I don't know if you told them, don't worry about saying the wrong thing, but did you have to convince them, look, this is about how you feel and, and, and being here. What was that conversation like with them? I think um, my approach is always to um, be very um, open of of what I'm trying to do and I also showed them my previous work, so they got the sense of the style. And of course, I didn't go in there immediately asking all kinds of uh, intimate questions, but just to get to know them and they get to know me. And what we did actually, they interviewed me too. So they, they, you know, I gave them my camera and I sat down and I was put in a way in their, in their uh, shoes a little bit. Of course, it's not going to end up in the film, but it was like a fun experience to kind of uh, switch the roles around. So we did that. And and of course, um, I hope that we um, you build up trust over over a long time, and we get along very well. But it takes time to to build this. It's not on the first visit, sure. And that's why I like to work uh, long term. And I was there over like a couple of years, and uh, it's just um, how it happened organically. And uh, I was so proud that they and happy that they were open to share their stories with me. I want to go ahead and bring into the conversation for the sake of time so we can give everyone enough time to reflect and share their thoughts. I want to first bring in Maurice Bailey, who's the current, who's the founder and current president of the Saltwater Geechee. He's a, he is a Saltwater Geechee resident of Hog Hammock and the director of the Sapelo Island Cultural Revitalization Societies. He's also the co-director of the University of Georgia's Cornelia Walker Bailey Program on Land and Agriculture. He's been on this program before, Maurice Welcome. Also, we're going to welcome back Victor Allen Weeks, who's a project administrator and intern for Save Our Legacy, ourselves, and also from the same organization, Jennifer Thompson, one of the pioneer students from Davidson College, who we profiled some time ago, who is also working with the agriculture program. Now I got everybody on board. Welcome. Good to see you again, Maurice, as always. Welcome, Victor. Yeah. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. Maurice. Hi, guys. Y'all should know each other. 
We do. We met for sure. (laughs) Maurice, um, I just want to, as you know, always, I want to just pay homage and let everyone know about the woman whose namesake is we're we're talking here, and that is Cornelia Walker Bailey. Um, I know she passed away, I believe, in 2017. Um, Correct? Yes. Uh, Before we get started, Mm -hmm. I'm not the director of Psychars. Okay. I've been the president of Psychos previously, but that's in over two years. I'm no longer there. Okay. I am just the provider of solo organization. Okay. I don't you, want that misinformation out. Oh, I appreciate that. And our apologies for having that incorrect. Um, let me begin with you because when we talked last time and just since then up to now and what you want folks to know about Cornelia Walker Bailey. Uh, just the work that she she has done since she was a little girl, her, her desire to, to hold on to her culture and educate her people. Uh, as she watched her communities disappear, she realized how important it was to preserve what was left. Uh, so that's my focus, and that's what I continue to try to do. Uh, as, as a mother, it was a whole different story. Mm-hmm. But as a historian... Uh, it, it's it was just bigger than than uh, just her, I should say. Maurice, do you fear that the culture, that the Gullah Geechee culture, is slowly, slowly dissipating here? It is. It is because as I was numbers throughout throughout the years in in the community and the Geechee culture up and down the coast. Uh, for, for various reasons, uh, and not sugarcoat stuff, a lot of the reason that our culture is not alive because of discrimination, uh, either job, financially, or the, the color of your, your skin, all based on that. So, and we was all taught a toll by by whites that we spoke Geechee, color, then we not accept it. So we had to change the way that we spoke and forget about our culture to live in this world uh, that they say this is the right thing to do. So yeah, our culture have been stolen away from us, forced away from us, and also for us to be accepted, we have to make these these changes. So we are, we are losing it, and mm-hmm. it's hard to get it back because as you lose that, that tone, that Geechee tone, uh, it's hard to recover. As you lose that ability to do those crafts, it's hard to re- recover. So a lot of our hair just now lies in our cemetery, behavior cemetery, because they went with the elderly. Hmm. I want to bring in Jennifer and Victor because you all have been working for so many years now in terms of preserving culture. You have an agriculture program that you're working with. Uh, Victor, I'll start with you. Give us an update on what y'all have been doing since the last time we spoke and how this is. Has it? Are you getting more folks involved? Most definitely. Thank you for having us on, Rose. Yeah, since we last left off, we've been able to coordinate some more groups to come. Um, actually, as of this year, we were like really excited to have um, students from Davidson College. Jennifer was coordinating with the Alternative Breaks group there. And so she passed that off to me. And then um, we've been able to continue that involvement from our home institution, which has been great. Um, last year, we were able to harvest a bunch of sugar cane. Some folks from UGA came down to support it. Um, yeah, it was, it's, it's been really cool to see 
more and more groups beginning to get involved, specifically groups from institutions that have mm-hmm. funds, have bodies, that have people capable to do some of the work that needs to be done, which can get strenuous at time. But to see them reinvest their capabilities to support the initiative that's going on to save our legacy ourselves, not just for the Gullah Geechee community there, but for Sapelo Island as a whole. So we've been making. Jennifer, you uh, you give a lot of tours. You educate folks. You're doing more than just giving tours. You're educating people about this community, about this culture. What questions do you get? I'm, I'm curious. What are those questions that folks typically have? Um, the first question I always get is, where is Sapelo? I've never heard of it. Um, and then usually after that, people just let me talk. Um, and they seem to be super surprised with just how intact the remaining, the remains of the culture are, um, especially within Hog Hammock. And so I think the most questions or curiosity comes out of physically being on Sapelo. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really hard to answer questions when you can't take people down there or when people haven't seen the island. Um, and it, for me, my experience, it's just been better to let them experience it. And so that's definitely the first question is like, oh, Sapelo Island, I've never heard of it because it is sort of this secret that's hidden away. Um, and it's a treasure, it's a treasure. And exposing people to that has been a pleasure over the years. Um, after graduating from Davidson, I did come back to Atlanta um, where I started my own collective. And through that collective, I've still been working towards the efforts of cultural re- revitalization um, in partnership with Maurice. Um, have also brought Maurice up to Atlanta to help connect him with urban farmers, Black urban farmers up here, and really educating Black urban farmers on the diaspora that we have of food in the United States and how we need to be connected. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just bringing in more youth, more black and brown youth specifically, um, who don't necessarily have access to land, but have the passion and want to learn from elders that are willing to teach. Um, and so, yeah, that's what I've been up to. And good to go back to your first question. That's pretty much the only question that I really get because people, when you start talking about people, uh, about Sapelo, people sort of get entranced and they just listen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I don't really get too many questions. Maybe Maurice gets more questions, but um, yeah, they just kind of let me go on my little spiel about Cornelia Walker Bailey, about Sapelo, about the work that Maurice has been doing, about my own involvement in it, in the agriculture program specifically. Um, and Yeah. Maurice, I want to come back to you for a moment. And a listener actually emailed this question. I had a question as well. How many families whose whose generations have been there are still left? Do you know? Seven. Just seven? Seven out of 44 families. Wow. And in the last time that we spoke, there were some concerns about development coming in and there was concerns about whether or not the local government there was helping to help preserve and help folks help these families stay on their land maurice these families they own the land that they that they that they're on correct is that correct yes they do it's not government owned no and so but no and so no none of them are in danger of losing their land oh yeah and in danger of losing uh tax reasons uh people are 
continue to build outside of zoning, which causes more tax issues. And we do not get, <clears throat> excuse me, the support from our local government. They actually want more development on South Oak because this is the focal point for Maxwell County. So we do not get support from our commissioners, uh, uh, anybody that represents us in Maxwell County. Uh, so we still got to do these things on our own to gain recognition or to try to preserve our culture. What about state community. lawmakers? Have, have they state been? State lawmakers uh, on the local level, great. We're getting a lot of support on the local level. On the higher level, it's the same thing because most of their friends are now buying and building houses on South Lowe. So we do not get that support from the upper state level. They're in the same uh, position as the local government. Uh, they want South Lowe as a treasure to them. So they're not interested in help us preserving. They're more interested in helping their friends acquire and being able to build the way they want to build. I want to bring Nick and Taylor back in for a moment. Will the viewers, when they see this documentary, do you all touch on that as well? Yeah. Oh, here's something. Uh, yes, we actually do. Um, it's not the main focus of the film, which sure. is really about Cornelia and the family, but it does uh, certainly come up. Cornelia does talk about it, um, that there's these houses being built, as uh, Maurice was just talking about, and that it's really changing the, the soul or the the core of the community, to put it mildly. And you actually, during the course of the film, you do see uh, one of the residents points out that in the backyard, there's a new house being built. Uh, and you can then later on towards the end of the film, you see that house is now finished. And then uh, uh, Sharon, uh, the lady just says, oh, well, uh, what does she say? I can't remember, but she's making a comment, like a snarky comment about, oh, well, now we have, oh, she says, Voila, new neighbors. Hmm. And just that comment tells you so much because it's just in like in a blink of an eye, things have changed so dramatically. And apparently to her, it seemed like, well, that's what happens. And it's just another another day on Sapelo, pretty much. So it was a, kind of a heavy, uh, sad uh, moment for me to witness. And I wanted to make sure it comes across in the film because that little, just that little segment tells you a lot. Mm -hmm. I hope. I hope that's how the viewers, uh, what they take away from it. From that scene. Jennifer, I'm looking at you through our screen here and you shook your head with that kind of like kind of like that shaking my you know what head. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so actually recently I was down on Saplo last month with a group of Davidson students and I got to witness one of these developments that quite literally I would say came was finished within a couple of months. Um, and it's something that is straight out of Hilton Head Island um, to the point where they paved a driveway, which is significant because there are no paved driveways on Sapelo. Um, and so just mm -hmm. even thinking about the ecological um, differences that that building alone is going to make, the tax differences, right? Like the size of the house alone in Atlanta would be worth upwards of $700,000. And this is a house that sits right on the edge of the marsh with the marsh view, right? And so like, when you just, when you know that some of these people that have access to this land have access to Zappolo specifically, they're friends with people in very strong or very powerful political positions. And they're able to just do things without clearance, without um, consulting islanders, without consulting residents of Hog Hammock, you know, and also their own their own personal ties to the development of other sea islands like Hilton Head, like St. Simons. It's just, 
it's really it bothers me i don't know it's have you all had conversations with these developers or these folks and then i mean i mean i know they're getting some side eye looks down there but clearly has anyone spoken to them victor maurice yes uh spoken to them uh we try to get out community rezone but we're getting resistance from the new owners they don't want it rezone because it's, it's so many loopholes that they get through to build what they want to build so that is a, a battle. We got different organizations helping us trying to do that. Uh, I was recently appointed to the Historic Preservation Committee uh, to help battle that. Uh, but our current governor, as I was told, stepped into that and you know, kind of did some favorite things for some of the people. So um, hold and, up, back up, Maurice. So you were told, may I ask, who told uh, you that? Um, I'm just. No, do you feel I'm not comfortable? Just Okay. told me that, but I talked to a lot of people and um, so I just so I'm clear, just so I'm clear, yeah. you're saying you were told that Governor Brian Kemp intervened when you all were trying to get this po- Sapelo Island or this portion of it somehow designated as a historic destination. No. Or something? Oh, be clear for me. No, okay. no. We've been a historic community since 1993. OK. No, this, this with the historical part of things, we just reestablished a historical committee uh and but it's it's this stack the deck with a bunch of good old boys to give you an example the committee was put together with the same guy that jennifer just spoke speaking about about building the houses and he brought an attorney uh to potentially sue the county to be able to build his house uh there's another guy that's pointed to the board that was also in a lawsuit with the state about claiming three parcels of land in the community that he does not own and he was appointed to the Board of Historical Preservation Committee. So that's just an example of how they, they continue to do these things uh, and ask, ask the commissioners why. And they just simply say, well, that's just the way it is. We couldn't tell them no. Uh, so we got people on our community now that have no interest in protecting the historical status of the community. We have people on the community that you know built outside of zoning that's suing to acquire more land mm-hmm. on the island. But yet they was appointed to be part of the Historic Preservation Committee. Maurice Bailey, we're going to continue this conversation, no doubt. Unfortunately, we don't have enough time, and I really, I sincerely apologize for that. Jennifer Thompson, as well as Victor Allen Weeks, also want to recognize here Nick Brandestini, Sapolo, the director and cinematographer, and also the co-director, Taylor Seagrass. We're going to continue this conversation. Trust me on that. <laughs> so... Hang with me. We're going to continue this conversation maybe next week, week after next. There's so much to get to here. But I want to thank all of you for taking the time. Taylor and Nick will have links to where folks can watch the film. Maurice, Jennifer, and Victor, you know we're going to have you all back. I really appreciate it. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you very much. much. Thank you all. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.